12th of January 1965, Marianne Schmidt and Christine Sharrock, both aged 15, were found murdered on a desolate, isolated stretch of beach just north of Cronulla, south of Sydney. The case would come to be known as the Wanda Beach Murders. One mention of the word Wanda is enough to send chills down the spine of those who remember the case that dominated the television reports, radio airwaves and print media of the day. The killing sparked one of the biggest manhunts Australia has ever seen. The police file on the case is over 10,000 pages long and over 14,000 people have been interviewed. Police efforts to solve the case have been described as exhaustive and leads have been followed up all around Australia. Despite the best efforts of police, no charges have ever been laid and the case remains unsolved to this day. The Wanda case contains many more questions than answers. What drew Marianne and Christine to the Wanda Sandhills that day? Had they prearranged to meet someone? Were they just in the wrong place at the wrong time? Speculation and many different theories have surrounded the case since day one. Only one thing is clear. A vicious and ruthless killer has never been brought to justice. The Schmidt family migrated to Australia from Germany in 1958. Along with Marianne, there were her parents, Helmut and Elizabeth, older brother Helmut Jr., younger brothers Hans, Peter and Wolfgang, and a younger sister, Trixie. Another brother, Norbert, was born whilst the family was in Australia. Upon their arrival, they stayed in various migrant camps, and then they finally settled in their family home in Brush Road, West Ride, in the northwest of Sydney. The Schmidts moved next door to Christine Sherrick, who was living in Brush Road with her grandparents, Jim and Jeanette Taig. Christine's father had recently passed away and her mother had remarried, and so Christine elected to live with her grandparents. Christine and Marianne formed an instant bond. They were always in each other's company, they were inseparable. Christine's uncle described of their friendship, they did not go out much and their main interests were centred around their homes. They were always in each other's company and neither went out with boys. Both girls were described as quiet, well-behaved, they were good in school, they attended church regularly with their parents. They weren't known to hang around any unsavoury characters. They were even described as being somewhat shy. In 1964, Helmut Senior passed away. One can only imagine how much tighter the bond between Christine and Marianne would have become, both losing fathers they were close to at such a young age. And like any other teenage girls, they had a love of the beach. They had an interest in music, special mention for Elvis and of course a keen natural interest in boys their own age. The only beach Marianne and Christine ever visited was Cronulla. Whilst the journey to Cronulla Beach was around two hours each way, it was the only Sydney beach that was accessible by train at the time. The girls had attended Cronulla Beach just recently on New Year's Day that year in 1965, only days before their murder. Whilst they were at Cronulla Beach, they went for a walk north to the Wanda Sandhills. The next day, Marianne visited the beach again with her brothers and sisters. Christine didn't make that trip. And on this second trip, Marianne left her family for a little while. And when she returned, she'd mentioned that she'd been for a walk to Wanda. She didn't say why. In early January 1965, Elizabeth Schmidt, Marianne's mother, was admitted to hospital to undergo an operation. She left her eldest children, Elma Jr. and Marianne, in charge of the household while she was in hospital recovering. On the 9th of January, Christine and Marianne visited Elizabeth in hospital 
Marianne asked if her and Christine could take her younger brothers and sisters to Cronulla Beach the following day. Elizabeth gave them permission to do so. As it turned out, the weather that next day on the 10th of January was terrible, and so Marianne and Christine postponed their beach trip until the following day, Monday the 11th of January. Now, in the morning of the 11th, whilst getting ready for the beach, Christine mentioned to her grandmother, Jeanette, that it would be fun to walk along the sand hills again. Jeanette, aware of how far away the Wanda Sand Hills actually were from the main part of Cronulla Beach, some two kilometres, replied, Don't go today, love. You've got the four little ones with you. It's too far. Christine tried to argue the point, but was again told by her grandmother, Don't go to the Sand Hills. So what are the Wanda Sand Hills and what were the girls' seemingly fascination with them? The Wanda Sand Hills, otherwise known as Green Hills, run behind Wanda Beach and continue north up to Kernel. Wanda is an Aboriginal name meaning sand hills by the sea beach. Wanda Beach is part of a longer stretch of beach coastline that starts with Cronulla Beach, includes North Cronulla Beach, Allura Beach and then Wanda Beach. The distance from the main Cronulla Beach to the Wanda Sand Hills is about two kilometres and then the sand hills themselves run a lot longer past that. The area in and around Wanda Surf Club and the main beach area itself were clean and pristine, but the Wanda Sand Hills were a very different, isolated story. In 1965, Wanda Sand Hills were described as Sydney's filthiest and loneliest stretch of beach, littered with smashed bottles, old shoes, rusted cans, broken poise, any other amount of discarded junk and rubbish that you can think of. This isolation meant the Wanda Sand Hills were a perfect spot for people to meet up who didn't necessarily want to be seen. In 1965, it was a far, far more conservative time than what we experience today. Incredibly, homosexuality was actually a criminal offence and it wouldn't be made legal for another 18 years. Certain parts of those sand hills were a popular location for men to meet up and engage in casual sex. The area was also known to attract nude sunbathers, other couples engaging in public sex, public masturbators, nudists. There's general perverted types who like to spy on people engaging in sexual activity, who like to spy on women, who like to harass women and proposition them for sex, things like that. Cars could be parked behind the sand hills and there were a number of trails that provided access to and from the sand hills without having to walk along the main beach areas. Many local residents at the time were well aware of what was going on in the Sand Hills and they refused to even let their children anywhere near there. It doesn't sound like the ideal place for two well-behaved, generally quiet type 15-year-old girls to go. But remember, Christine and Marianne weren't from the local area. Not even really close, it was a two-hour journey each way. Although local residents were well aware of what was going on there, it doesn't mean Marianne and Christine were aware. It was 1965 after all, information wasn't as readily available and it didn't travel nearly as fast as what it does today. There's absolutely no information to suggest that Marion and Christine were aware of what went on in those sand hills at all. So on that morning, on the 11th of January, Christine and Marion packed for their day at the beach. Christine packed the thermos of cordial, but she took no food. She instead took a one pound note and said that she would buy lunch. Marion made sandwiches and packed some fruit. This information would become crucial later on. When they were all set, around 8.30am, Christine, Marianne, Marianne's younger brothers Peter, Wolfgang and Norbert and her younger sister Trixie made the walk to West Ride train station. 
Peter was age 10, Wolfgang 7, Norbert 5, and her sister Trixie was 9. Her brothers Helmut Jr. and Hans elected to stay at home and complete some household chores. They caught the train from West Ryde to Redfern, and at Redfern they would have to change trains to go to Cronulla. It was on this first part of the journey between West Ryde and Redfern that a 15-year-old male, only described as being tall, struck up a conversation with Marianne and Christine. It's unknown what they talked about, but when they arrived at Redfern Station and had to change trains, the boy who struck up that conversation remained on the train. He didn't follow them. They didn't talk to anyone else on the journey. They finally arrived at Cronulla Beach around 11am and when they arrived they were met by the news that Cronulla Beach was closed due to dangerous seas and strong winds. If only they had turned around and gone home. But they didn't. They headed to the southern end of Cronulla Beach, hanging out around the rocks, and Wolfgang kept pestering Marianne that he wanted to go for a swim. Finally she gave in and took him to a shallow, more secluded spot for a quick dip. They then rejoined the others and they ate lunch at the rocks. At some time while they were around the rocks, Wolfgang saw Marianne and Christine talking to a boy. He was described as being 16 years old, medium build, long fair hair, and he was hunting for crabs at the time with a homemade spear. Wolfgang couldn't hear what they were talking about. Shortly after they ate lunch, Marianne suggested going for a walk up to the sandhills at Wanda. The others agreed. So they left their belongings at the rocks and all walked north, beginning their two-kilometre journey to the sandhills. But as they got to Wanda Beach, the walk had become too much for the younger children. The wind was howling, it was whipping up the sand, stinging their legs. So Wolfgang found a spot that was sheltered from the wind. Marianne and Christine told the younger kids to stay put and they would go back south to grab their belongings from the rocks so they could organise to start heading home. They mentioned they'd be about 20 minutes. But clearly Marianne and Christine had no intention of going home just yet. Instead of walking south back to where their gear was, they continued north to the sandhills. Peter yelled out, you're going the wrong way. The girls just looked back and laughed and kept walking into the sandhills. It's the last time Norbert, Peter and Trixie ever saw Christine and Marianne alive. After about 10 minutes, Peter sent Wolfgang to look for the girls. Wolfgang walked to the sandhills, and it's here that he sees Marianne and Christine talking to a boy. He describes this boy as being a big boy, age 16, long, fair hair, had white cream on his nose, carrying a blue towel, wearing light grey trousers. He didn't have a shirt on and he was quite suntanned, so basically he described him as a surfy-looking type boy. Wolfgang says that the surfy boy looked angry and he was asking the girls their names. He decided against following them any further and the girls disappeared with the male into the sandhills. About 10 minutes later, Wolfgang saw the surfy team walking back out of the sandhills. He was alone. There was no sight of the girls. He now had the blue towel tied around his neck. Wolfgang actually asked the surfy, where are the girls? But he didn't answer and he just walked straight past him. Neither Peter, Trixie or Norbert ever report seeing this surfy team. Wolfgang's story of this encounter is subject of much debate. It actually changed a few times and sort of evolved over several interviews. 
he kept adding vital pieces of information as time went on. Now, there could be many reasons why this happened, but it was a source of frustration for detectives at the time. And as such, Wolfgang's version has been treated with a little bit of scepticism. We can only speculate why the girls walked into the sand hills that day. They were obviously determined to go there. Christine had mentioned it to her grandmother that morning and her grandmother told her not to go. It was a two kilometre walk with young children in howling wind, poor weather conditions. It makes that two kilometres that much more longer. And not only that, the actual sand hills themselves stretch for kilometres further past that point. This convinced many people that they had planned to meet someone at the Sandhills that day. Certainly that was the initial police theory that they went with in the early stages of the investigation. One factor, though, is that Christine and Marianne had originally planned to go to the beach the day before. If you remember, they cancelled due to poor weather and their plans had changed. They were now there on the Monday. If they were planning to meet someone prearranged, it wasn't as easy to reschedule back then as it is today with mobile phones and social media. So if they were in fact planning to meet someone in those sandhills that day, it's far more likely that they met that someone that day, Monday the 11th of January. After Wolfgang lost sight of Christine and Marianne, a witness, Dennis Dostein, described seeing the girls hurry through the sandhills. Dennis is actually the last known person to see the girls alive. He says Christine and Marianne were walking fast. They appeared to be in a hurry. They were about 800 metres away from where their bodies were found at the time. One of the girls was constantly looking over her shoulder as if someone was following them. Dennis had a bit of a look, but he couldn't see anyone. Didn't seem suspicious, so he didn't think too much more of it. While Marianne and Christine were gone, Wolfgang, Norbert, Peter and Trixie continued to wait. After a while, Peter, Trixie, Wolfgang had another look around for the girls. They couldn't find them. There was no trace of them. At no stage did Wolfgang make mention of the surfy team. After a few hours of waiting, they became aware time was slipping away. The last train out of Cronulla was at 6pm and they had to get there. So they made the journey back down to the southern end of Cronulla Beach. They found their belongings where they had left them on the rocks. They were untouched. They made the last train out of Cronulla and arrived home at about 8pm. Alma Jr. and Christine's grandparents were made aware of Christine and Marianne's disappearance and the police were called. No major alarm bells went off for the police who attended to take the missing persons report. They arrived just before midnight. Two 15-year-old girls, the best of friends, they were out for a day at the beach. They walked off under no duress or threat. They were happy, they were laughing. The usual questions would have been asked, have they done this before? Is there anywhere you think they might be? Could they be at a friend's place? Do they have boyfriends? Of some concern, though, for police was that it was out of character for them. They had happy home lives, they were well-behaved, they'd never run off before. So they're not the types just to sort of go missing without letting anyone know where they were, and especially to leave four young children at the beach alone. The report was broadcast to all police stations in the Sydney area. Of course, the police around Cronulla and the surrounding patrols would have been paying much more attention than the others. And just imagine how different it was back then in 1965. There was no mobile phones to track, no social media accounts to check, no instant media releases that could go viral and keep the public on the lookout. There was none of that. 
But even if all that modern technology was in existence, it would have been too late. Christine and Mary Ann were already dead. About 2.30pm on the 12th of January 1965, Peter Smith, aged 17, was walking through the sand hills with his two younger nephews. He saw what he initially thought was a store mannequin lying in the sand. He went in and had a closer look, and it was there that the grim reality of what he had found became clear. Filled with shock, horror, panic, Peter ran to Wanda Surf Club. It's about 1,500 metres away to the south. He notified the caretaker, Barry Ezzi, that he'd found the dead body of a young girl and he asked to use a phone so he could call police. Police arrived, they met Peter at Wanda Surf Club and then he led them up to the burial site. On closer inspection of the scene, it was noticed by a police officer that there were three feet sticking out from under the sand, not two. And the already horrific discovery became that much more horrific when it was discovered that there were two bodies, not one. Now, they weren't really buried as such. It was just sort of covered with sand and not that deep. The wind overnight had blown the sand off. Local Cronulla detectives soon notified the criminal investigation branch and more specialist detectives made their way to Wanda, including the initial officer in charge of the case, Detective Inspector Haynes. The Director of Forensic Medicine, Dr Lang, and his assistant, Dr Brighton, also attended. They thoroughly examined the crime scene and portable lighting had to be brought in so they could continue their work into the night. It didn't take long for police to link the gruesome discovery to the missing person report of Christine and Mary Ann. And not long after this, a positive identification was made. The crime scene itself was two sandhills back from where they started on the beach side, 150 metres from the water's edge and about 1,500 metres north of Wanda Surf Club. Despite not being at the beach that day, Hans Schmidt visited the scene later on, and he had this to say about it. The place the girls were killed was very isolated, even though it was only two dunes back from the beach. It was so quiet I couldn't even hear the waves crashing. You could scream your head off and no one would hear a thing. No one could have heard the girls screaming for help. Blood and signs of a struggle were located 32 metres away from where the bodies lay, and there was a drag mark going all the way from this site back to where Christine and Marianne were. An examination of the scene led Detective Inspector Haynes to say this. It looks as though the Schmidt girl was knocked down and then stabbed. Christine was killed about 20 yards away and her body was then dragged back to where the Schmidt girl lay. It's believed Christine witnessed Marianne being attacked and then ran off only to be caught a short distance away. At intervals of about every three metres along the drag marks, there were much heavier concentrations of blood. These heavier concentrations were consistent with the person who was dragging the body stopping for a rest. Christine was slim, described as a petite girl, so the implication here was clear. Whoever was dragging her may not have been that physically strong. Detectives also located car tracks about 30 metres west from where Christine was attacked, showing the killer could have fled the scene in a vehicle, although... It's not known if these tracks were related. The killer could have also easily escaped over the back of the sand hills towards Captain Cook Drive, where he could have disappeared without ever being back on the main beach area. The post-mortem of the girls was conducted by the Director of Forensic Medicine, Dr Lang, at the city morgue. Both Christine and Marianne were savagely attacked. It was one of the most horrific crimes, if not the most horrific crime Australia had ever seen. 
the attack was so savage that the full details were never released to the public. Christine's official cause of death was hemorrhage as a result of penetrating wounds to the chest associated with a fracture of the skull and injury to the brain. Marianne's official cause of death was from hemorrhage as a result of a cut throat and penetrating wounds to the chest. There were also clear signs both girls had been sexually assaulted. Christine's pants had been removed and Marianne's swimming costume had been cut and rolled up, exposing the lower half of her body. A semen sample was also found. The time of death was estimated to be between 2pm and midnight on Monday the 11th of January. The exact time was difficult to pinpoint exactly as they'd been covered by hot sand. It was discovered that Christine had undigested cabbage and celery in her stomach, which she would have had to have eaten within one hour of her death. This immediately stood out as the girls had only taken sandwiches and fruit to the beach and cabbage and celery weren't on the sandwiches. As well as this, it was revealed that Christine had a bloody alcohol reading of 0.015, which would have been enough to have had a midi of beer or a nip of spirits just prior to her death. Although it also could have been the result of her consuming several drinks in the hours leading up to her death, it was impossible to know which. Christine was not known to ever drink. Her family stated that she never touched the alcohol. Her mother said that she couldn't even stand the smell of it. They were horrified. Loud alarm bells were going off here. The food found in Christine's stomach was different to what they'd brought to the beach, and they certainly didn't take any alcohol with them. The food in Christine's stomach was consumed within one hour of her death, meaning it's likely that Christine shared food and alcohol with the killer. As a result of the post-mortem, police were of the belief that they were looking for a fishing knife. They were also looking for a heavy blunt instrument that was used to inflict the injuries on Christine, such as a rock, a lump of wood or a piece of metal pipe. Wolfgang, Peter, Trixie and Norbert were questioned extensively. On the 13th of January, they were taken back to the Sandhills by police to retrace their steps and to try and get them to recall as much information as they possibly could. It's here that detectives first learned that Wolfgang saw Surfy team talking to Christine and Marianne just before they disappeared into the Sandhills. Now, remember Wolfgang kept changing his story as the weeks went on and kept adding in vital clues. Well, he later revealed that the surfy teen he had seen with Christine and Marianne was in actual fact the same boy hunting for crabs he had seen them talking to earlier in the day at the rocks at the southern end of the beach. About a month later in another interview, he added that the surfy teen had a knife in a pouch around his waist when he walked off with the girls, and when he walked back out of the sandhills alone, that knife was missing. Why his story changed numerous times is anyone's guess, but it's not at all surprising that his memory was a bit muddled up. Remember, his father had just died, his mother had just had a serious operation and was in hospital, his sister had just been brutally murdered, and he was right there. The amount of stress, trauma, fear, grief, guilt, any other number of emotions that you could think of that seven-year-old Wolfgang would have been experiencing is something that most people wouldn't even be able to begin to imagine. He was most likely in severe shock. There's no such thing as grief counselling back then, It was a much different time. People just expected to suck it up and get on with it. So is it any wonder that his memory was a bit muddled up? But the surfy teen information from Wolfgang was the first breakthrough for detectives and the hunt for the teen surfy suspect began. Every media report, whether on TV, radio or in print, was dominated with reports of the teen surfy suspect seen with the girls just prior to their death. 
Now, the problem with that description is that it matched just about every teenager in the Cronulla area, and not only the Cronulla area, but a lot of areas. So it didn't narrow down the search any more than saying police were looking for a teenager would have. Police were quick to try and make the point that they didn't necessarily believe the teen surfie suspect was the killer. The fear being that people who were at the beach that day who might have saw something that didn't fit with the teen surfie scenario wouldn't come forward. It didn't take long for police to be swamped with calls and information about the teen surfie. They received hundreds of calls a day. It was even revealed that a teen matching that description was kicked off on the beach only a few days before the killings for harassing young girls. The media ran wild and Police Commissioner Norman Allen made a public appeal for that surfie teen to come forward. The hunt for the surfie team was in full swing, leading to the media reporting that four suspects had been detained and were being questioned, one as far away as Queensland. The truth was that they were never really suspects at all and the teenagers had just been arrested on other minor charges. The fact that they may have looked like surfies was enough for the media to label them suspects. It was basically the media was just trying to get one up on each other for the latest scoop, the breaking story. A mammoth search of the crime scene and surrounding Wanda Sandhills area commenced. Police were sent from all over Sydney to help and even police trainees were sent in to help. The search wasn't easy. Remember, the Sandhills were described as Sydney's filthiest beach, littered with all sorts of discarded rubbish. This hampered the search for clues greatly. Several items were located, including shoes and even some knives, but they were quickly ruled out as having anything to do with the murders. By Thursday, police had secured a front-end loader from Sutherland Shire Council so they could dig up the scene, which they then put through a makeshift sift. Army experts with metal and mine detectors were even sent in to help search. Police ended up digging 500 tonnes of sand and found very little to assist their investigation. The only piece of physical evidence that was ever located was a broken piece of knife blade. It was about one inch long and had a clear cutting edge. It was thought to be from a kitchen knife. The piece of knife tested positive for blood, however, there was an insufficient amount to conduct any further testing at the time. Dr Lang would later testify at the inquest that the stab wounds would have been difficult to inflict with this particular piece of broken blade, although he did say that some cut marks on Christine could have been made with a knife that had a portion of blade missing. It was unclear if this piece of blade was in fact part of the murder weapon which had been broken off, such was the savage nature of the attacks, or if it was completely unrelated. It was 1965. DNA forensic evidence wasn't a known thing until 1986. 21 years after the Wanda Beach murders. On the 15th of January, Elizabeth Schmidt broke her silence. She was still in hospital recovering from her operation. Doctors had let her leave for a short time to comfort her children when the news broke of Marianne's death. However, she was now back. She said, My daughter and the other young girl have gone into eternal life. They have met their maker and have therefore entered a new phase of existence. Person responsible the murderer, has his life ahead of him. How he faces this life is something I cannot answer, but his life would appear to be, spiritually speaking, poorer than anything else. He would always be hunted and haunted. The man responsible should meet his punishment, and I think my husband would have felt the same way. He should be made responsible for his action. At this time, Commissioner Allen renewed his appeal for the surf team to come forward. In a press conference, he said, I renew my appeal to the youth described by Wolfgang Schmidt to come forward. 
He should not be influenced by published statements. He could very well clear the air for us in our investigations. The published statements referred to, of course, being the media reports saying that Surfitine was the killer. The appeals from Commissioner Allen continued and just the next day he made yet another one. I renew my appeal to this youth to come forward and tell us what happened last Monday. Because he was seen coming away alone from the scene, it does not necessarily follow that he is the killer. He stressed that police were of the belief that he was quite possibly an innocent bystander at the wrong place at the wrong time, and it would not take long for police to clear him of suspicion if he would just come in and talk to them. The police really wanted to catch up with the surfy team. By this stage, police had commenced interviewing people who were at the beach on Monday the 11th of January. Over 20 people who were there had been interviewed. More than 40 detectives had been assigned full-time to the case in what was one of the biggest manhunts Australia had ever seen. Reports were continuing to come in from people all over the state and even all over the country of people matching the description of Serpy team that they were suspicious of or suspected had involvement. Police received thousands upon thousands of calls and they struggled to keep up with the sheer volume of information that was coming in. Many feel that a vital tip-off or a vital piece of information may have been lost amongst the thousands of calls that were received. Both Christine and Marianne had kept diaries and through those diaries, police learnt that on their visit to the beach on New Year's Day, just a few days before their death, they had met two boys who they'd shared kisses with. On the 16th of January, police made a public appeal for those two boys to come forward, and they did. They were only known as Ted and Jim. They were interviewed by police and confirmed that they had met Marianne and Christine at the beach on New Year's Day, however, they had made no plans to meet again. Their alibis checked out and they were quickly ruled out of the investigation. On the 18th of January, the media ran wild that a teenager who had a pair of blood-stained trousers was being held by police. A pair of blood-stained trousers were found on Coogee Beach and they were later identified as being the teenager who was being held. Wolfgang was hurried to Ramwick Police Station where a lineup was conducted, but Wolfgang did not identify him as the surfy team. And it turned out that this teenager who was being held had a simple explanation for the blood on his trousers and it was discovered he wasn't at Wanda Beach on the day of the murders. He was quickly released. Detectives were being flooded with not only tip-offs about surfy team, but they were also being flooded with information about several other suspicious males who were seen at the beach on the day of the killings and the day leading up to them. A sketch artist was brought in to try and assist putting some names to the descriptions. It was on the 18th of January that police made their first appeal to the public for the boy hunting crabs that day to come forward. Now, the description they released of the boy hunting crabs was pretty much identical to Surfy Teen, and remember, Wolfgang would go on to say that they were one in the same person. On the 20th of January, separate funeral services were held for Marianne and Christine. The service for Marianne was held in the West Chapel of the Metropolitan Funeral Home at Burwood, and she was then cremated at Brookwood Crematorium. The service for Christine was held at St Michael's Catholic Church Meadowbank, and she was then buried at Liverpool Cemetery near her father. Both services attracted hundreds of mourners. Detectives and police photographers also attended both services. They were working on the theory that the girls knew their killer and had arranged a meeting at the Sandhills, and they hoped that surfy teen may have been at the funerals. Just about every male in attendance was photographed for later reference. At the service of Marianne Schmidt, two teenage sisters were separated and interviewed separately by detectives. The father of these two sisters had just alerted police that they may have valuable information concerning the background of Marianne and Christine, 
and they hadn't realised the value of the information until now. Of course, detectives were on high alert and they swiftly interviewed the girls, but unfortunately, no light was thrown on the investigation. By this stage, police had started to sort through some of the sheer volume of information that was coming through. And there were two people who they were particularly interested in talking to early on. Now, these people were seen by Dennis Dostone, who, if you remember, was the last known person to have seen the girls alive. Along with seeing the girls walk to the hills that day, he also saw a number of other people. Two of particular interest to police were a tall, pale, 19-year-old male and an older male described to be between 40 and 50 years old with a stocky build and tan leathery skin. Despite their best efforts, police were never able to identify these two males and they never came forward. Another witness, Francis Williams, 57 years old, was at the beach that day. He came forward and he described seeing Christine, Marianne and the younger children at about 1pm walking together north along the beach towards Wanda. They were about 100 metres north of Wanda Surf Club at the time. Francis thought that they looked to be in a hurry, walking quite quickly. Along with the children, Francis also described seeing a number of other people in and around Wanda that day. He saw a male who was sunbathing in the sandhills and as Francis approached him, he got up, shook sand off him and walked away towards Wanda Surf Club. He saw two young boys playing on the beach, two people fishing on the beach, a man who was sunbathing with what was described as a piece of corrugated iron over his head. Now, the media ran wild and he became a suspect at the time too. It was assumed oh, he's obviously a perverted using a corrugated iron to hide himself spying on girls or whatever, but remember it was a windy day. Poor weather, he might have just been blocking the sand out of his eyes that was being blown in from the wind. But he was of interest to police. There was also a woman who had become bogged behind the sand hills and she was assisted by Francis and another unknown male who drove off in a utility. So not only were they getting reports of suspicious people sighted around Wanda that day, but they were getting reports of a lot of other people who were at the beach that day who not necessarily suspicious, but they were there. They may have seen something, and these people weren't coming forward. They weren't making themselves known. It was frustrating police. So they actually released details of these eight people that Francis saw to the media, and the woman who became bogged in the sand actually came forward, but she wasn't able to assist in the investigation. Unfortunately, they never identified any of the seven other people so many people were at the beach that day who never came forward. Remember what Wanda Sandhills was renowned for at this time, but there's no suggestion that all those people were involved in that sort of behaviour. I mean, there's two people fishing, there was two kids playing. It's unknown why so many people never came forward, whether they were too scared to come forward or they didn't want to get involved, they thought they didn't see anything, so it was a waste of time, but you never know something that they saw that they may have thought was insignificant may have been vital. On the 22nd of January, an interesting article was published in the Sydney Morning Herald. The article was only very small, buried back on page 10. By now, other news had started to sort of filter through to the front pages, such as the health of Winston Churchill and the Rolling Stones' visit to Australia. But it was here, buried amongst other articles, a small headline read, Wonder victims claim lapses. The article details that Marianne Schmidt was struck by a car on the corner of Victoria Road and Brush Road at Ryde on the 7th of May 1964. 
she suffered a fractured skull and spent nine days in hospital. As a result of that accident, the family had submitted a compensation claim seeking £20,000. Australia was still using the pound currency at the time. The relative sum of money of £20,000 back then in today's money would be somewhere around half a million dollars. Quite a significant sum of money. The claim was due to be heard later that year in 1965. However, as a result of her death, the claim lapsed and it would not proceed any further. Police were starting to become frustrated by their inability to identify the Surfy team and their inability to identify a number of other people at the beach that day and their lack of cooperation in coming forward to assist the investigation. On the 22nd of January, Commissioner Norman Allen made yet another appeal to the public. He said, I have on more than one occasion asked the public to assist in every way within their power with information which might help detectives engage on the case. I now make a further and equally sincere appeal. I do this because I am satisfied that there must be some persons in the community who would have some information that they have not brought to the notice of police. It is not unreasonable to assume that someone somewhere in our community has seen or heard something which would be of great assistance in this matter. For example, since this crime, a person may not have been seen at places he used to frequent, or there may have been a change in pattern of his normal activity and behaviour. It is possible that to someone's knowledge he has said or done something which would give rise to a reasonable suspicion that he might have been in some way associated with the crime. That is the type of vital information we would like to get. On the 23rd of January, a sketch was published in the papers of the Wanda Beach and Sand Hills area showing the crime scene and the different locations where each of the seven people were thought to be that were cited by Francis Williams who still hadn't come forward. That is, the woman who was bogged in the sand, she actually came forward of um, the people fishing, the boys playing in the sand, etc. The, the male with the corrugated iron. This did generate a response from the public and it resulted in a number of other people coming forward who were there that day that didn't realise just how close to the crime scene they actually were. However, it didn't help in tracking down any of the seven people that Francis Williams cited. About this time, a psychiatrist released a report revealing their thoughts on the killer. They believed that he lived in the local area and had intimate knowledge of the Sand Hills and could even be one of the perverts who frequented the Wanda Sand Hills. Now, this information being released to the media obviously wouldn't have encouraged any of the people that were there who may have been engaging in that type of behaviour to come forward. I mean, they would have thought that they were going to be held responsible for the crime. Psychiatrists went on to describe the killer as most likely being a loner who spent time at Wanda Sandhill spying on nude sunbathers and people having sex. They felt that the killer committed the crimes on impulse rather than it being planned out and that he may have acted out on previous urges he'd been experienced when he saw Marianne and Christine walking alone through the Sandhills. The investigation continued, but there were still no big breaks. It was hampered by the lack of physical evidence at the scene, the lack of witnesses, the inability to identify the people that were seen at the beach and the unwillingness of those people to come forward. To try and combat this, on the 29th of January, the New South Wales Premier, Mr Jack Renshaw, announced a £10,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction for the person responsible for the murders. The currency changed to dollars soon after this reward was announced and so the reward was changed to $20,000. The relative sum of money today would be about $250,000, so it was a significant reward. It was hoped that it would encourage people who were at the beach that day who either couldn't be bothered or who came from the groups of people who didn't want to be known by police to come forward. 
That reward is still in existence today, but incredibly, it has never been increased. It still stands at $20,000. So it might be time for that figure to come up. Two girls who were riding horses on the beach that day came forward and they reported of yet another suspicious male. They said that about 400 metres away from the murder scene, they saw a male walking around in the nude through the sand hills. One of the girls yelled out to him, what are you doing? But he didn't answer. He just ignored them and kept walking. He was carrying the clothes in his hand. So yet another person was added to the list of suspicious people at the beach that day and like the others, he was never identified either. He obviously never came forward. On the 1st of February, police thought they had what was their first major breakthrough in the case, discovering an important piece of evidence, or so they thought at the time. By this stage, police had been placed permanently in the Wanda Sand Hills keeping watch. It was hoped that some of the people that had been seen at the beach on the day of the murders that hadn't yet come forward would be cited, or even hoped that the surfing team would show up again. Now, of course, they weren't in uniform, they were dressed as sunbathers, so they were undercover, if you will. Now, a police officer on Sandhill Wash located a blue towel washed up on the shore. Of course, the surfy team described by Wolfgang was carrying a blue towel. So the towel was immediately set for scientific testing and it was hoped that this towel was the one belonged to surfy team described by Wolfgang. But all it was was another frustrating dead end. A 13-year-old boy came forward when news broke of the towel in the media and he identified it as one that he had lost at the beach only a few days before. The large reward that was put up by the New South Wales government was leading to all types of people calling in. The investigation started to become very frustrated by false leads, dead ends, hoax calls, false confessions, wives ringing up about their husbands, all sorts of things. And by now, anyone who resembled a surfy teen had a phone call made to police about them. And why, no doubt, most of the calls being made to police were well-intentioned The truth of the matter is it was hindering the investigation. I mean, every lead, every call that came in had to be chased down, followed up. And that's where it's thought that vital information that was actually important to the case could be lost amongst the pile of useless information that was coming in. In April on the 19th, two 15-year-old girls were attacked near Carringbar train station. It's only a short distance away from Cronulla. The girls were walking together near the train station when a 15-year-old male grabbed one of them. The girls immediately screamed and frightened the attacker off. The description was very similar to that of the surfy team provided by Wolfgang. So that certainly pushed the already frightened community further to the edge. But the fact that the community was so much on edge, I mean, this could have been totally unrelated to the one the case. It could have been any random teenager just approaching two girls to say hello or whatever and grabbed one of them and... They've screamed and everyone's run off. He didn't produce a knife or anything like that. The full details of the attack were never released, so it's unclear exactly what happened, but no one was injured, certainly. By April, police had waded through the sheer volume of information that had come in, and it led to the release of six sketches who they considered suspects and that they really wanted to speak to. This included men making sexual advances and comments towards women the naked man seen walking through the sand hills, another man exposing himself to women a few months after the murders on the beach, and of course the boy who had just attacked the two girls at Carringbar. 
Wolfgang wasn't able to help place with the sketch of the surfy team as it was just too agreeable. Everything the sketch artist said he would go along with, so it was impossible to make a sketch. But of particular interest to police out of these six men were two men who they thought would most be valuable to the investigation that they really wanted to identify. The first came to be known as the fat man. So he was described as a medium to plump build between 25 and 35 years old, about 5 feet 11 inches tall, slightly foreign in appearance. He was described as carrying an orange and white towel, wearing grey trousers and a white shirt. He was carrying a radio and a newspaper at the time. What he did, he approached several women on the beach on the day of the murders and on the days leading up to the murders. He had pornographic magazines with him and he was making inappropriate comments to women, asking if they wanted to have a look through the magazine, asking them how the sex was in Sydney. He mentioned that he was from South Australia. So police were very, very keen to catch up with him, but he, along with so many others, was never identified and he never came forward. Another man who was of particular interest to police was described as being 18 to 20 years old with a slim build, light brown hair, and he was wearing a long sleeve shirt tucked into a pair of fawn shorts and he had missing teeth. He was also making inappropriate propositions to women, asking to have sex with women, offering them money, things like that. But again, he was never identified either. So it's starting to get ridiculous now, the amount of people that police wanted to speak to who they deemed to be suspicious who were at the beach on the day of the murders that were never identified and who never came forward. I mean, you'd think that they would come forward given what happened, the brutal nature of the crimes, but no, they're out there somewhere. Who knows if they're still alive, but if they are, now's the time. On the 29th of May, a group of youths came forward stating that they'd found a pair of flippers and a homemade crab spear about one kilometre away from where the girls were located. Now, they found these only a few days after the murder, and so it's not clear why they waited until the 29th of May to come forward and hand it in or couldn't find that anywhere. But regardless, they made themselves known to police and the flippers and the spear were handed in. Wolfgang was re-interviewed, but he was unable to identify the spear. He couldn't remember if it's the same one that the boy who was crabbing on the rocks that spoke to Marion and Christine was using. It was a promising lead, but it didn't end up going anywhere. The investigation really started to stall and by the beginning of 1966, the amount of full-time detectives on the case had dropped from 40 down to eight. It was still being worked hard, but they were just frustrated by the lack of ability to identify a number of people at the beach and the amount of useless information that was still coming in that they were wasting their time, basically. Police were still assigned to the Wanda Stanhills to watch for anything suspicious, but all that ended up in achieving was they arrested a number of people for sexual-related offences, but it got them no closer to identifying the killer. On the 29th of January, 66, another brutal murder shocked the nation. 57-year-old Wilhelmina Kruger was found murdered at the Piccadilly Shopping Arcade in Wollongong, where she worked as a cleaner. Wollongong's in close proximity to Wanda. It's less than an hour's drive away. The murder was very horrific and it did bear similarities to the Wanda case, that of a frenzied knife attack. There were no suspects, no witnesses, there was a lack of physical evidence, no attempt was made to hide a body. It led many to believe the murder of Wilhelmina Kruger was committed by the person responsible for Wanda. 
And just weeks later, on the 26th of February, the body of Anna Dallancoa was found on Old Illawarra Road, Menai, southwest of Sydney, again in close proximity to both Wanda and Wollongong. She too had been the victim of a brutal, frenzied knife attack, almost identical to the attack committed on Wilhelmina Kruger. Anna was working as an escort at the time and she was last seen on the 16th of February, 66, leaving a club in King's Cross. She mentioned to a few friends in the club that she was going to meet a client and she was never seen alive again. There was no witnesses, no suspects, a lack of physical evidence, no attempt made to hide the body. In actual fact, the killer returned to where Anna was dumped and dragged the body out from behind the bushes closer to the road so she would be found. Police are almost certain the murders of Anna Dallincoa and Wilhelmina Kruger were committed by the same person. It's never been proven that the Wanda case was linked to both those murders, but many suspect that they are. Just like the Wanda case, the murders of Wilhelmina Kruger and Anna Dallincoa remain unsolved. On the 20th of April 1966, a coroner's inquest into the Wanda case was held. The inquest was presided over by City Coroner Mr Looms. The amount of detectives working the case full-time was now down to about six. The investigation log totaled over 5,000 pages and over 7,000 people had been interviewed. A large amount of witnesses gave evidence at the inquest, including the all-important Schmidt children. The inquest lasted three days, concluding on the 22nd of April. Coroner Mr Looms was of the belief that there must be somebody who could shed light on the murders. He went on to say police had already conducted an exhaustive investigation, although he still hoped that it could be intensified, if that was at all possible. There was no doubt what happened in his mind, saying, the cause of death is very evident, a vicious, brutal murder. After the inquest, police stated that they would be revisiting every page of the police file in hopes of uncovering a vital piece of information that may have been previously overlooked. Unfortunately, they didn't uncover anything. Police still held the belief that somebody out there knew something about the case and that person was withholding information either because they were protecting someone who was close to them or they were in fear of that person they were protecting. Or they were too embarrassed or scared to come forward for whatever reason it was that they were at the Sand Hills that day. The six sketches that police had released prior were made into full-size, lifelike dummies which were displayed at the Sydney Easter Show in 1967. It was hoped that the large crowds that poured through the Easter show every year would be able to put names to the faces, but no one could. On the 17th of March, 67, another woman was attacked at Wanda Beach. 28-year-old Brenda Gowan was sunbathing on the beach with her three children when she was attacked by an unknown male person. A witness, Trevor Betts, rushed to her aid and the attacker fled. He was seen leaving in what was described as an old white vehicle. Both the descriptions of Brenda and Trevor fit the description of one of the six sketches that had just been turned into life-size dummies at the Easter show. Many were convinced that the Wanda Beach killer had just struck again. Despite an extensive investigation and search for the attacker, he was never identified. Over the years, there's been three names that have been thrown up in the media as suspects for the Wanda Beach case. There's no real evidence that's ever been released linking any of them to the crime. It's all sort of circumstantial and maybe and what-ifs. The first is Alan Bassett. On Monday the 13th of June, 66, Alan Raymond Bassett from Unandera, just south of Wollongong, was charged for the brutal murder of Carolyn May Orphan. They met each other at a dance on Friday night, the 10th of June, and Carolyn and Alan left together. 
Later that night, Alan tied Carolyn up, raped her and killed her and dumped her on the side of the road. He was arrested a few days later and later convicted of murder. He's thought to be a prime suspect for not only the Wanda case, but the murders of Wilhelmina Kruger and Anadal and Koa. One detective became that obsessed with Alan as being the killer that he even visited him when he was retired, trying to get him to confess. Alan Bassett was born in England on the 3rd of May, 1945. By all reports, he seemed like a quiet and shy, normal sort of guy. He later told police and the courts when he was being tried for the murder of Carolyn May orphan that he had no idea what came over him and he didn't mean to kill her. This despite the fact that she was tied up, strangled, hit over the head with a large rock. He asked to be found guilty of manslaughter. That was obviously rejected and he was found guilty of murder. He was given life in prison. Now, this murder, no knife was used. So that is the glaring difference between the Wanda Beach murders and the murders of Mrs Kruger and Miss Dallancoa. However, it was still a very savage and vicious attack. The savageness of that attack and the fact that Alan was from Wollongong, only down the road from the Piccadilly Centre and a short drive to Manoa and Wanda, meant that he was obviously going to be looked at as a suspect. Investigations by police revealed that they thought Alan Bassett was actually in Cronulla around the time of the Wanda Beach murders. The detective who became obsessed with Alan being responsible was Detective Seth Johnson. He became so obsessed with the theory that many thought that it was an unhealthy obsession. It was even eventually recommended that he resign from the force. After his conviction, Alan Bassett was diagnosed as a schizophrenic and he ended up serving his time in a psychiatric hospital up near Newcastle. So in his retirement, Detective Johnson paid regular visits to Alan and was just basically trying to get him to confess, trying to talk to him about the unsolved murders. He was convinced that he had his men. During this time, Alan presented Detective Johnson with a gift. It was, it's been described as a painting of a bush scene. Detective Johnson at the time thought it was quite ugly and he didn't think too much of it and put it away for a few years. But after a while, he pulled it out and decided to get it framed and put it up. It was at this time he looked at the painting a little bit more closely and whether or not it was actually there or he was that obsessed, he was just wanted it to be there and started to see things, he became convinced that it was a confession to the four unsolved murders. He said the painting depicted a clue that only the murderer would know. However, what this clue is, no one knows. It was never made public. Detective Johnson, he went to the press with his theory and it got widespread media coverage. He even started to write a book about it, but unfortunately he was killed in an accident just before the book was due to be released and it was never released. He convinced a well-known crime reporter at the time, Bill Jenkins, that Alan was his man as well. Some in the police force agreed with him, a lot didn't. They thought he was sort of seeing things and his unhealthy obsession had just spiralled out of control. One person of significant importance that was convinced by Detective Johnson's 
theory is Alan Bassett's father. He actually went on public record to say that he believed Alan was responsible for the Wonder Beast murders and that he should never be released. Despite those pleas from his father in 1995, Alan Bassett was released from custody and placed back into the community after serving 29 years in custody. He denied any involvement in any crime other than that of the murder of Carolyn Orphan for which he was convicted. In the year 2000, speculation still circled around Alan's involvement and he made a public offer to provide a DNA sample to clear him from the crime. It's unknown if police ever took him up on that or if the advances in technology will one day be able to clear or convict Alan of the crime. There's another name that's thrown up as a prime suspect for the Wanda Beach murders, and that's Christopher Wilder. And in 1984, his death in the United States sparked the interest of the New South Wales Police and actually caused them to re-examine the Wanda case to study any links that he may have had with, with Wanda. And the reason for that is because he was a serial killer. He was also known as the Beauty Queen Killer. He just killed eight women suspected of killing more through the US. He was on the top 10 FBI most wanted when he was killed in a confrontation with police. And the reason New South Wales police were looking at him and any links to Wanda is because he was born in Sydney and that's where he was living at the time of Wanda. So he was born in 1945 and he had his first major run-in with the law as a 17-year-old when he was charged for the gang rape of a woman at a Sydney beach. He pled down to a lesser charge and got off with probation and electric shock therapy. In 1968, he married, and that lasted all of a week before his wife left him, claiming sexual and physical abuse. In 1969, he lured a young 19-year-old nursing student into his car at Manly Beach and convinced her to pose nude for a few photos. When that was done, he tried to force her to have sex with him, and when she refused, he threatened to blackmail her boss with the photos. She managed to get away and call police, but she refused to testify against him. Later that year, he moved to the United States. His father was from the US and that's how he was able to move over there. He moved to Florida and it didn't take long for him to find some significant wealth over there due to booming construction and real estate industries. In 1971, he had his first run-in with the law over there, caught trying to entice women to pose for nude photographs as he'd done before. The next year, he was actually arrested for trying to force a 16-year-old girl to have sex with him, but he was acquitted of that charge. A few years after that, posing as a photographer, Wilder lured a schoolgirl out of a shopping mall and he drugged her and raped her. He somehow managed to plea bargain that one down and again was given probation and therapy. In 1982, he came back to Australia to visit his parents and on that visit, he abducted two 15-year-old girls, tied them up and forced them to pose for nude photographs. He was arrested the next day and his parents managed to post a large amount of bail for him. I think it was somewhere around $300,000. Incredibly, he was allowed to leave Australia until his trial so he could go back to the US for work. Not long after that, in 1984, while still awaiting trial back in Australia for the abduction charge, he commenced his murderous rampage across nine different states of America, kidnapping a dozen women. Some were lucky enough to get away but he murdered eight and he's actually suspected in more than that. His MO was to pose as a photographer, comment about how beautiful the girl was and entice her out with him, convincing her that he'd be able to get her into modelling. 
So it seems pretty obvious to many why Christopher Wilder is a prime suspect for Wanda. He was 19 at the time, living in Sydney, and he turned out to be a serial killer. The one problem being his timeline of crimes doesn't seem to match up with Wanda. He started off with a string of sexual offences and trying to get girls posed nude before he committed his first known murder in 1984. 19 years after the Wanda case. But that is if his first murder was actually in 1984. Wilder is suspected of being involved in the abduction and suspected murder of several women both in the United States and Australia well before 84. Some remain convinced that Wilder is the man for Wanda. Although he was slightly older than the surfy teen Wolfgang described, his age is still in the ballpark and the actual physical description itself would have matched Wilder at the time. When he was killed, it was in a confrontation with police. He'd just had a physical struggle with one officer who was wounded and then Wilder was shot not long after that. It's unknown if he was shot as a result of the struggle or if he turned the gun on himself, which most people suspect is what happened. New South Wales police requested a blood sample after his death and advances in technology may yet prove if he was or wasn't involved, but at the moment it's very much circumstantial with no real evidence at all. Now, if you do some reading on the Wanda case, there is one name that appears in bright flashing lights as being the prime suspect. He's also been described as Australia's Hannibal Lecter, which tells you probably all you need to know about him. He's considered by many to be not only the prime suspect in the Wanda case, but also a number of other unsolved child murders and child disappearances from the late 60s. That includes the disappearance of the three Beaumont children from Adelaide on the 26th of January, 66, the murder of Alan Redston on the 27th of September, 66, in Canberra, the murder of Simon Brooke on the 18th of May, 68, in Glebe, Sydney, and the disappearance of Linda Stewell on the 10th of August, 68, from St Kilda in Victoria. Now, he's never been charged for any of these crimes, but he certainly has been questioned about them. He's never made any admissions, but at the same time, he hasn't exactly denied involvement either. So who is Derek Percy? He was born in Strathfield, Sydney on the 15th of September, 1948. In 1956, he and his family moved down to Victoria where they stayed in a few different places. And in 61, they moved to Mount Beauty in the northeast of Victoria. Derek was always known as a little bit different, a bit of a loner, a little hard to get to know. And in 1964, in the Mount Beauty area, women's underwear started to disappear off clotheslines and even from inside some houses. The whispers around town were that Derek was responsible, but it was never proven. That is until later on that year, in the summer of 64, when two of his schoolmates made their way down to a popular local swimming hole. Along the way, they saw something that was so twisted that no one believed their story. Everyone thought they were just making it up. That is until a few years later. What they saw was Derek walking around in a woman's petticoat. Derek didn't see them and they didn't call out. Instead, they decided to hide and try and work out what the hell he was doing. What they saw next was Derek pull out a knife and he started stabbing a pair of women's underpants that he had with him. Once he was done there, he defecated in the river and then walked off. The kids, of course, questioned Derek about it, but he denied it. And the other kids and other people in the town didn't really believe the story. They knew Derek was a bit different, but that behaviour seemed to be quite a stretch. It was around this time that Derek started keeping journals outlining sexual references towards children. So 
But it's at this time that the beginnings of an extremely dark, twisted path started for Derek. In 1966, they moved to Cancobe in New South Wales, just north of the Victorian border. Derek indecently assaulted two young girls while living here. They were two sisters and they lived next door to the Percy family. The youngest was six. Derek lured them into a caravan and got them to take their pants off. Percy was actually caught out and for some reason the police weren't notified. Instead, the girl's father left it to Derek's father to discipline him. Derek's diary entries continued to get darker and increasingly violent. One diary entry made specific mention of a plan to kidnap two girls and take them to a secluded place. He joined the Navy on the 25th of November 1967 and it was while he was in the Navy he was arrested for the horrific murder of 12-year-old Yvonne Tui. Yvonne and her friend Shane, who was aged 11, decided to go for a walk and during this walk they got separated. Derek pounced on Yvonne. He pulled out a knife and hurled her by knife point. Shane made his way back and discovered what was going on. He produced a tomahawk that he was carrying to chop firewood and he managed to escape. And it was his description of Derek and Derek's vehicle that he's seen him drive off in that was crucial and allowed police to arrest Derek only a few hours after the abduction. He was arrested at nearby Flinders Naval Depot where he was based at the time, listening to a radio report of Yvonne's disappearance, trying to wash her blood out of his clothes. Unfortunately, when they caught up with Derek, Yvonne was already dead. A search of his belongings revealed sickening journal entries and drawings depicting the rape, torture and murder of children. He even had an entry detailing his desire to kidnap a young boy and girl, just as he had done or tried to do with Shane a few hours before. The murder was one of the worst that detectives had seen, if not the worst, and the facts are too horrible to go about in detail. But in short, Yvonne was strangled, mutilated and sexually assaulted. Derek stood trial on the 2nd of April 1970 at the Melbourne Supreme Court. After a six-day trial, he was found not guilty by reasons of insanity. But he was ordered to be kept in custody at the governor's leisure, which means indefinitely. Unfortunately, that's where he remained until he died in 2013. Despite being suspected of many other crimes, the murder of Yvonne Tui is the crime, the only crime that he was ever charged with. During his incarceration, many more drawings, diary entries were found outlining his sick fantasies. One rape, torture and murder journal was so organised that he even had an index for it. Names weren't even invented yet for the type of sickness and depravity that was Derek Percy. He has since been described as a sadistic pedophile with a morbid and sexual attraction to faecal matter, with killing being the ultimate sexual act for him. Sounds like a good suspect for the Wanda Beach murders. But to sum it up quickly, I think it's likely Derek Percy was responsible for some of the crimes he's suspected of, but not involved in others. The main question for today is, though, was Derek Percy involved in the Wanda Beach murders? There's no clear-cut answer. The answer's maybe. There's no clear evidence linking him to Wanda. It's all very much circumstantial. And some of those circumstances that people rely on are the fact that the Percy family had a keen interest in sailing. In actual fact, in January 1965, at the time of Wanda, the National Moth Class Regatta was being held at Botany Bay Yacht Club, which is not too far away from Wanda at all. And this is the very class of sailing that the Percys were interested in. It's suspected, but it's never been able to be proven that the Percy family were in Sydney for that regatta. Now, Derek would have been 16 at the time. 
And on top of that, if they were in Sydney, they likely would have been staying at Derek's grandmother's place in Denistone, which is the neighbouring suburb to West Ryde. Meaning to get to the beach on train, he would have been travelling the exact same train line as Marianne and Christine. Now, remember, Marianne and Christine were approached by a teenage male on the train between Ryde and Redfern, and many suspect that that was Derek, although there's not much to go on other than that it was a teenage boy and that he was probably on the same train line if he was maybe in Sydney, maybe staying at his grandmother's house. You see, it's there's nothing concrete. Also, Derek doesn't match the surfy teen description that Wolfgang provided, but some claim that he was a dead ringer for one of the six sketches that was released later on by police and turned into life-size dummies. It was also revealed that years later, when several of Derek's journals were found, he had a newspaper article about the Wanda Beach murders with obscene comments written on it. Now, that's been taken way out of context. The article was actually a Playboy article titled Wicked Wanda, and it had nothing to do with the Wanda Beach murders. So there's no direct evidence linking Percy to the crime. Some believe he's guilty, some believe he isn't. But if he was involved, he took his secret to the grave. Detectives visited him on his deathbed several times, I think, trying to question him about not only Wanda but the other murders, but he gave nothing away. Maybe advancement in DNA technology will be able to prove if Percy is in fact the Wanda Beach killer. In 2012, there was a major breakthrough in the investigation and that was due to DNA technology. Police retested the clothing worn by Christine and Marianne and they were in luck. They found a small spot of blood and that blood belongs to a male. Unfortunately, the profile is too weak that they can't test any further. But it's hoped that with further advances in technology that one day, and some say that could be within five years, that it is hoped a full DNA profile will be obtained from that blood spot and the Wanda case will finally be solved. As for the semen sample they found back at the time of the murders, the problem was it was 1965 and no one had heard of DNA testing. It wasn't heard of for many years after. Police wouldn't have been able to imagine what was possible with today's technology. And unfortunately, this may have led to less than ideal evidence handling because at some point over the last 51 years, that semen sample has been lost. It's unknown what the status of the broken piece of knife blade was that they found back at the crime scene. They couldn't test it any further back then, but with advances in DNA technology, maybe they can today, but like the semen sample, that may have been lost too. So was Alan Bassett, Chris Wilder or Derek Percy responsible for the Wanda Beach murders? Or is someone else responsible? Maybe his name has already been given to police and it's buried somewhere amongst those thousands upon thousands of pages upon pages of that is the police file. Maybe a vital piece of evidence or information was lost in the thousands of phone calls that police received. Maybe it's someone completely unknown who's managed to avoid detection all these years. Maybe it was two people. Is there someone still out there who was up on the beach that day in the sand hills who saw something, who's too scared to come forward? Even to today, police think that there is. Certainly there's been a number of people described who were at the beach that day who were never identified and who never came forward. And it was a different time back then. Homosexuality was still illegal. 
it was actually considered to be a psychiatric disorder back then. So society clearly held a very dim view of it. Just as a dim view would have been held of the nudists and, you know, some of the other unscrupulous characters that might have been in the Sand Hills that day. But times have changed and we can only hope that if someone did see or hear something that they are still alive and they may still yet come forward. Although it's probably a very dim hope at this point in time. If those people, what they saw or heard, they might even think that it was insignificant and wouldn't help in the investigation, so there's no use coming forward and risking exposure. But it could be the vital piece of missing information that's needed to solve the case and bring closure to the families of Christine and Marianne. The case is still as frightening today as it would have been back then and affected a great deal of people, obviously the families, that goes without saying, but even the detectives, the police that were close to the investigation, it really affected a lot of them. Now, a lot of people close to the case have passed on and are no longer with us, but the case still remains unsolved and let's just hope that it's solved one day, whether it be a DNA breakthrough or some vital piece of information that comes forward or something. Until then, may Mary and Christine rest in peace.